Welcome to the Jesus Chronicles. I'm your host, Sandy Laws, and this is episode number two. On the Jesus Chronicles, I'm talking about the life of Jesus and what happened between his birth in Bethlehem and his death and resurrection outside the city walls of Jerusalem. As we study how his life unfolded, we're learning more about Jesus, who he was, where he lived, what he said and did, and why he attracted a following of disciples. I think this exploration gives us a unique perspective about him. That's why I started the JC. Now, I love to study the Bible, and I always want to share what I've learned. I'm a pastor at a small church in Denver, where I teach a class about the Bible. I also lead trips to Israel. You can learn more about me on my website, www.thejesuschronicles.org. In episode one, I laid some groundwork. I talked about Israel because that's where Jesus was born. I addressed the question of why Jesus was born when he was. And I explored who knew that Jesus was coming to earth. In this episode, I'm picking up where I left off, which is the period of time between the Old and New Testaments. This is roughly a 400-plus year span of time, and what happened during this time is absolutely critical to uncovering the true nativity story, and after all, that's my goal. So let's get started. The Time Between the Testaments up your Bible and flip to the last page of Malachi. This is the last book of the Old Testament. Oftentimes, after the last page, there's a blank page. That single blank page represents the time between the Old and the New Testament. It also represents this massive amount of time in Israel's history that is unaccounted for in the Bible. When I first realized that, I was surprised. Like, what? It just feels like this big hole in the plot, as if someone dropped the ball of keeping track of Israel's history. So I decided to do a little research to see what happened during this missing period of time. Well, as it turns out, to fully understand what happened, why there is this gap of time, you have to know something about God. God communicates with his people on earth in various ways. And in the ancient days, one of the ways that God communicated was through the prophets. Look in the Old Testament. There are 17 books written by prophets, and there are dozens of other prophets mentioned in the text. It feels to me like the prophets were always there. They were always visible, and they were very verbose. And then nothing like nada, no more recorded prophetic revelation. And the question is, why? Why did God stop the flow of communication through his prophets to his people? The abruptness of it must mean something. Some scholars label this as the time of God being silent, almost like God stepped back and was drawing a breath. Don't get me wrong, God is always providing for us. But this gap of time just feels to me like God was intentionally less visible, less vocal, like he was doing something behind the scenes. And what could that have been? 
In seminary, whenever a professor asked a question, we would always answer under our breath, Jesus Christ. It was kind of an inside joke, like every question ultimately leads to Jesus. And I have to say that was about the extent of joking around in seminary. But in this case, Jesus is the answer to what God was doing. I don't know if the Holy Trinity was busy preparing for Jesus' birth in some way that I can't imagine, or if God the Father was simply waiting for human history to catch up to where it needed to be. Whatever the case may be, my sense of it is that God was preparing something new, but not unexpected. It all had to do with his plan of salvation for his people. All right, just to recap, all major prophetic revelations cease during this entire period of time, and that's why the Bible doesn't have a single reference to it. But of course, time still marched on, and our history, humankind's history, was still being made. These years were anything but silent in terms of historical significance and cultural change. In fact, this period of time really shaped the place where Jesus was born. That's why I'm so interested in it, and that's why I'm telling you about it. What happened in Israel between the Testaments? I'm talking about the time between the Testaments to uncover what happened specifically in Israel. And you know what? It turns out that while there is an abundance of information about what happened to the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, there is very little information about what happened to the Jewish people in Israel. In fact, there are only three sources of information in existence that give us any insight into what was going on in Israel during this lost span of time. The first source of information are the writings of a man named Josephus. You may have heard of him. Josephus was a Jewish historian in the first century AD, and he fought against the Romans during the first Jewish-Roman War, but he was captured and made a slave. He served in the Roman court as an interpreter, and while a captive, he defected and became a Roman citizen. But the fact that he was Jewish meant he knew and understood the Israelites. Now, as a Roman citizen, he was witnessing firsthand what happened to Israel during its Roman occupation. And he wrote two books about it, Jewish Antiquities and Jewish Wars. This is where we get some information about the Jewish people and the Romans. The second source is a collection of books known as the Apocrypha, a word that means hidden in Greek. This is a collection of 15 short independent books or additions to existing books that ended up in the Old Testament. In case you didn't know this, I'm telling you now that there are two versions of the Bible, the Catholic version and the Protestant version. The apocryphal writings are included in the Catholic version. Two of the apocrypha books, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, give us some insight into the reign of the Hasmoneans during this time period. I'll tell you more about the Hasmoneans in a minute, because they rule over Israel just before the Romans. The last source of information about Israel is another body of literary work known as the Pseudepigrapha. This word is Greek for false ascriptions. 
Basically, various people wrote a letter or a book back in the 2nd and 3rd century AD, and then they attached a famous person's name to it to give it more credibility. And they used the names of famous Jewish or Christian people, like Moses or Abraham, the Apostle Thomas, or Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, these books were not deemed credible for many reasons, and they were not included as part of the Bible. But they do provide us with some insight into the life of the Jewish people, and that's really what we're looking for. I know what you're thinking. Oh, that's all fascinating, Sandy, but really, what's the point? The point is this. There are precious few resources to tell us what happened in Israel in the four centuries before Jesus was born. So we have to piece this information together from these three sources in order to have any insight into life in Israel. And if you really want to know the story of Jesus' birth, you have to understand the religious, political, and cultural trends that shaped Israel before he was born. Uh, But don't worry, I'm not going to talk about everything that happened to the Jewish people over this 400-year span of time. I just want you to know about certain trends that impacted the Jewish people. And I'm going to talk about four empires that ruled over Israel during this time. The Persians, the Greeks, the Hasmoneans, and the Romans. I'll talk more specifically about the Romans in the next episode. Here we go. First up, the Persians. The Persians ruled over Israel from 425 to 331 BC. My question is, what happened to the Jewish people under Persian rule? Now, research into our three sources show that the Jewish religion evolved under the Persian rule, adding some new twists and variations, some of which were still in place in the first century AD. And there are three trends that I think are worth mentioning. First, the Jews became preoccupied with keeping the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is the body of laws that Moses detailed in the Torah. The Torah, in case you don't know, is the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, the Jewish leaders living under Persian rule became increasingly convinced that their forced exiles from Israel were a punishment inflicted by God because of their lack of attention to the Mosaic Law. In their way of thinking, if they strictly adhere to the Mosaic Law, God would set them free from their oppressors. And obedience to the law became an obsession by the Jewish leaders. Next, the oral tradition was developed. Now, let me explain this. The challenge to adhering to the Mosaic Law was that it wasn't always specific about applications to everyday life. To deal with that, the Jewish leaders created a body of oral laws or oral traditions. Basically, it told the Jews how to interpret the Mosaic Law so they could apply it to their everyday life. Last, Aramaic became the primary spoken language. Aramaic became the language of choice for business and international relations throughout much of the Persian Empire, including Israel. It remained the language of everyday use among the Jews well into the first century. By the time of Jesus' ministry, Hebrew was limited to the reading of scriptures. Many Jews were no longer fluent in Hebrew. Jesus most likely spoke Aramaic. 
Moving on, after the Persians came the Greeks. The next great figure in Israel's long history is none other than Alexander the Great. The Persians lost control of Israel when Alexander conquered much of the former Persian Empire. Israel came under Greek rule in 331 BC as Alexander's army swept eastward. Now, one of Alexander's grand plans was to unite his massive empire and create a new civilization that was based on the Hellenistic or Greek culture. This pressure to create a unified culture impacted the entire Greek empire, including Israel. Its impact on life for the Jewish people was both positive and negative. So let's start with the good. Now, Alexander was an administrative genius. He wanted the urban areas of his empire to grow and be unified. That led to the growth of mass communications. News and information spread more rapidly from urban area to urban area. I mean, to be sure, it's nothing like how fast news travels today. But for that place and time in world history, news traveled relatively fast. Mass communication helped to unite the massive Greek empire. Also, the common language shifted to Greek. The Jews still spoke Aramaic, but everyone who wanted to do any business in the Greek empire had to know a little Greek. A common language meant that when the New Testament was written in Greek, it could be understood by many of the people living in the Roman Empire. Now, Hellenization, or the imposition of the Greek culture, also had a negative impact on the Israelites. The Greeks brought to Israel some institutions and practices that were disruptive to the Jews' exclusionary lifestyle. One example is the introduction of the Greek library. The libraries contained information that was enticing to the Jewish people, who were interested in new areas of studies. Now, this broadened their worldview beyond the Torah exclusively. One other interesting development was the introduction of the gymnasium. The Greeks loved sports and working out. And this was also enticing to the Jews, but the problem was the Greeks worked out in the nude. And, of course, that was something the Jews could not do. These are just a couple of examples of how the Greeks influenced the Jews in Israel. Alexander's rule was cut short by his untimely death at the age of 33. When he died, he left no successor, so his vast empire was divided. Ultimately, it was settled into the hands of two different rulers, Ptolemy and Seleucus. These two family dynasties would control Israel for more than a century and a half. Okay, hang in there. I'm almost done. Now, the Ptolemies ruled Israel after Alexander's death until 198 B.C. This was a pretty peaceful time for the Jews, and the fact is there's very little information about what was going on in Israel during this time. In 198 B.C., the Seleucids conquered Israel, taking it away from the Ptolemies. They occupied Israel for several decades, cycling through a couple of rulers. I think it's worth noting that about a decade into their occupation, the Seleucids signed a peace treaty with Rome, 
and this required a substantial yearly payment, which meant heavy taxation on all the Jews in Israel. Now I'm going to skip ahead a little bit and focus on one Seleucid ruler in particular, Antiochus IV. He became the ruler of Israel in 175 BC. Now this guy was Israel's worst nightmare. First, he increased taxes on everyone in Israel to get even more money for Rome. But here's the bottom line. He hated the Jewish people. He wanted the Israelites to become more Hellenistic, and it made him mad that they resisted him. So he comes into Israel roughly 200 years before Jesus was born, and he tries to crush the Jewish people, and he does this in several ways. Antiochus made it illegal for the Jews to practice their faith, which meant no observation of the Sabbath, no celebration of the festivals, he banned any reading of the Torah, and he burned copies of it. Even worse, he renamed the temple in Jerusalem to the Temple of Zeus after a Greek god, and he set up a pagan altar in the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig. But that was nothing compared to the mass genocide he committed. He had his troops march against the Jewish people not once but twice, killing tens of thousands of men, women, and children. His army ransacked the temple treasury, taking all the money and stealing sacred items. It was clear to the Jewish people that they could no longer tolerate being ruled by Antiochus. Their fight to free themselves came from an unlikely person, an elderly man named Mattathias. In 167 BC, an agent from Antiochus's court arrived in a small Jewish village and insisted that the villagers set up a pagan altar and make a sacrifice to the Greek gods. He instructed Mattathias to do it, but he refused. When another Jewish villager stepped up to do it, Mattathias killed him and the king's agent. Soon after, he fled to the nearby mountains with his five sons and other sympathizers. This was the beginning of a 24-year war that resulted in the independence of Israel, at least for a period of time. Mattathias' family name was Hasmonean, after his great-grandfather Hasmon. The reign founded by Mattathias is called the Hasmonean Dynasty. I would be remiss if I didn't tell you that the other name for this family is the Maccabees. That is because Mattathias' son Judah was nicknamed Maccabee, which means hammer, so the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans reference the same family dynasty. To be sure, in the beginning, this renewed freedom was good for the Jewish people. But as is often the case, family dynasties decay and become something totally different from what was intended. In the end, the Hasmoneans evolved into an aristocratic, Hellenistic regime that was hard to distinguish from the Seleucids. Eventually, the Hasmoneans lost their rule over Israel based on a huge blunder. I'll talk about that in the next episode, when the Romans come marching in. Hey, we did it. We're done. I'm at the end of this history lesson, and here's what we've learned so far. The review of these years help us to understand the Jewish culture and faith before Jesus was born. Looking back, I can see that the Jews lived and practiced their faith at the whim of an ever-changing ruler. 
Some rulers were decent or indifferent. Many others were horrible. In order to stay a cohesive body dedicated to Yahweh, the Jewish people had to make a conscientious effort to put a fence around their beliefs. They wanted to lock the world out and focus on their specific religious practices. But it also seems as if there was no way to keep the Jewish faith pure in a way that the leaders would have liked. The Jewish people were influenced by cultural trends, try as they might to exclude any outside thinking. In particular, the Greeks seemed to have the biggest influence, dividing the Jews who adopted Hellenistic ways from those who did not. Just remember that I'm covering this history as a backdrop to the birth of Jesus. What it means to us today. Okay, I'm wrapping this up, but I want to talk about what this period of time teaches us about God and the nature of human rulers on earth. We often wonder why God is seemingly silent about what is going on in our world. Yet God provides for us on a continual basis. If he didn't, everything he set into motion would simply disappear. So there is this distinction between his continual care, his providence, if you will, and when and where he decides to insert himself into human history. We just have to decide that it is him who decides when, where, and how to show himself in a big way to his creation. This could happen during our lifetime. It might not. The history of the Jews during this time period is also a good reminder that while human rulers can and do impact our lives, they can never dictate our beliefs unless we let them. The earth is ruled by people, some of whom are decent and many of whom are evil because they are corrupt but no earthly ruler can control what's in our hearts. Next time on the JC. Next time I will talk about the period of time from 63 BC to the birth of Jesus. I focus on the Romans and on King Herod specifically. Jesus lived his entire life under Roman rule so understanding the Romans brings his life into greater context. The Jesus Chronicles is written and produced by Sandy Laws. It is edited by Stacy Sepp. Check out my website at www.thejesuschronicles for more episodes, information, research sources, and illustrations. Thanks for listening.